Good morning, everyone. Uh, We are in our study of Mark's Gospel, and we've come to chapter 3, and the moment when Jesus chose his 12 apostles. Uh, Studying the lives of these men, who were the foundation of the church, provides us with great insight into how God graciously uh, works in the lives of his people. A lot of the lessons that uh, were taught to these men are in many ways lessons that we can learn and apply for ourselves as believers. But we also gain clarity uh, when confronted with those in our modern age who are uh, self-professed apostles of Christ. Of course, those who make that claim should be dismissed immediately because no one, as we've seen past the first century, could ever meet the biblical qualifications for apostleship. And yet we can also see that the lives and the teaching of these self-professed apostles today, it does not compare in any way to the men that Christ personally chose and appointed. Case in point, on June 23rd, 2008, apostolic leaders gathered in Lakeland, Florida to commission a new apostle, This man, a man by the name of Todd Bentley, uh, had been leading a revival of sorts in the area for the previous few months. Yet by August 2008, Bentley announced that he was separating from his wife after it became public that he was having an affair with a female member of his staff. Not really the character of an apostle. Now, Were the true apostles of Christ sinless? No. Throughout the gospel accounts, these men were flawed. They were also unequipped, and many of them were uneducated according to the standards of religious leadership. Uh, They were certainly not the kind of men you would choose from a worldly standpoint to take such leadership position. Yet with the exception of Judas, these character traits were public knowledge At the time Christ commissioned them, they were not being deliberately deceptive. And yet through the grace and the power of God, he enabled these men to grow and to mature, to truly be Christ's authoritative delegates, to be the foundation of the church. It's God's practice to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise in order that the glory and sovereignty of God may be seen clearly. And it's testament to God's power that 2,000 years later, we're gathering here today to read from God's word, to learn about these ordinary men through whom the gospel of life was proclaimed and through whom it was preserved as scripture so that each generation may hear and know the glory of Christ, the Saviour and Lord. Well, last week our focus was on the Apostle Peter, and today our focus will be on the next two apostles listed by Mark. In chapter 3, verse 17, these men are James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. And the scripture gives us a lot to think about with these two men. Peter, James, and John 
made up a distinct group within the wider apostles. At times, Peter's brother Andrew was also included, but it seemed that Jesus, in his great wisdom, decided it would be beneficial to invest more directed time into these three men. And it's a clear lesson in discipleship that we can follow in the church today. While the the corporate gathering on the Lord's Day is central to the life of the church, each one of us can't physically be with every single person in a discipling relationship to the same extent. Now, Jesus' actions, they didn't imply that some of the other apostles were less equal or any less loved, simply showed that Jesus saw the need to discern how his efforts were best used and invested. Let's also not forget that after Judas's death, Matthias was divinely appointed as a replacement, which means that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was still investing time in training all of the disciples. How would Matthias be ready if that were not the case? But even though he's investing time and training in all the disciples, it didn't take away from the fact that he spent extra time with some. And of course, that just makes it all the more imperative for the church today to be at work making sure every person within our midst is being discipled. We'll see that more intense focus of Jesus as we study the individual apostles, but we can see that even in the list of the apostles' names found throughout the New Testament, as there actually seems to be three groups of four within the twelve. There's those we know a lot about, those we know some about, and those we don't know a lot about. For starters, in every list... Simon Peter is listed first, Philip is listed fifth, and James, the son of Alphaeus, is listed ninth. And it seems that these men were leaders of their own smaller group. Why? Because these three names, sorry, because the three names that appear after each one of these men are always the same, but sometimes these names are in a different order. So Peter is always listed first, and then James, John and Andrew will always come after him. But the order of James, John and Andrew's names doesn't always match with all the lists. Same with the next group. Philip is always listed first. While the next three names are all the same, it's always Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew. Nevertheless, some of, these, some of the names of these men are listed in a different order. And we find the same with the last group as well. Seems that while all the apostles were equally apostles, uh, did not discount the fact that some sort of order was also divinely established. We can also glean from this, at least implicitly, the importance of structure. Now, some people balk at the idea of structure, but structure in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. We're gathering in a structure today. Uh, This building is a structure that is a help to us. And when we leave, most of us will drive in a motorised structure. Thousands of pieces designed to work together to get us from point A to point B. And then we'll walk in the door to another structure that we call home, where we'll sit down and relax. Those are all good structures. 
But you talk to the guys that head out to Fulham Prison, and they'll explain about structures they visit every week that are designed to limit and hinder people's freedom. So the concept of structure is not something that's moral... Sorry, it is something that is morally neutral, right? It's not inherently bad, and it's not inherently good. There is a a lot of kickback in churches today against structure. There's a lot of talk about wanting things to develop organically. And in one sense, that is a valid reaction against the overly hierarchical structures that have at times existed in the church, things that have taken away the, the personal focus. Remember, the church is the people, right? But at the same time, to dispense with all structure is to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. A far better way is to look to the Word of God, His Word to us, and to discern what God has said about the organisation of His people. You know, right here in Mark 3, we get a demonstration that organisation is not in itself a bad thing. Jesus organised. He structured things. See, out of all the disciples, he called to himself 12, whom he designated apostles. And within the 12, there seems to be three groups of four, and to one of those groups, he gave more intensified focus. And within that group, his focus was especially on three. One of whom, Simon Peter, was the lead apostle, that first among equals, and the other two were James and John, who are our focus today. So who were these two men? Well, to begin with, it is possible, perhaps even probable, that James and John were actually Jesus' cousins. We come to that conclusion by studying the different gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. We're told that at the foot of the cross, there were many women looking on, but the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and John, tell us specifically of four women. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, there was Mary Magdalene, and another woman, who if all three gospels are referring to the same woman, means that she was the sister of Jesus' mother, that her name was Salome, and that she was the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. This would also explain why from the cross, Jesus asked John to look after Mary, his own mother. You see, Jesus was Mary's oldest son, and since Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, had Uh, most probably died years earlier. It was Jesus who had been tasked with the responsibility of caring and providing for his widowed mother and the rest of his brothers and sisters, those who were born to Mary after Jesus, of whom Joseph was the biological father. Now, clearly, the most important reason for Jesus placing this responsibility on John was that John would offer Christian care for his mother. See, at this point, Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah. They all thought he was out of his mind. That's why the task was given to John. But, of course, it would have been an extra blessing had there been a family connection there already, which seems to be the case. 
But let's now go back to the beginning. We read in Mark chapter 1 that after Jesus called Simon Peter and Andrew by the Sea of Galilee, he called James and John as well. Now, if they were his cousins, they would have known him already. But the rest of his family didn't believe him, so that in itself was not a reason for them to follow him. It's probably a reason for them not to follow him if he went with the crowd. Now, Jesus had already begun teaching by this stage. James and John had probably heard Jesus speak and considered themselves disciples by this point. And so here by the Sea of Galilee, they get a formalised call to follow him. And how do they respond? With obedience. Mark 1 verse 20 says, They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. While they leave their father and follow Christ, we remember from last week that James and John, like Peter and Andrew, they didn't fully give up their day jobs at this point. That moment is recorded in Luke chapter 5, when they witnessed that miraculous catch of fish, and then they saw the glory and the power and holiness of Christ Jesus, where they recognised, along with Peter, their own sinfulness and their need of submitting to Jesus as Lord. At that point, that was when Jesus told them it was time to be made fishers of men. Yet from that first moment, that first encounter by the Sea of Galilee, we see in James and John what it means to be a disciple of Christ. They left their previous life and followed him. And the point is not that in becoming a Christian, you cease involvement with everything in your life to that moment. No, it means that you acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour and that following him is now your greatest priority. He is now the lens through which everything else is viewed. Those things in your life that are contrary to his holiness are to be cut off. Those things in your life that are hindering your maturing in him are to be put aside. He is now Lord and you live for his glory, but you do so empowered by his grace. Now Jesus invited James and John to be with him in some truly significant moments. In Mark 5 verse 37, they were with Jesus when he raised the dead girl back to life. Jump ahead to Mark 9. And they also had the privilege of witnessing Jesus' divine glory on the the Mount of Transfiguration. A moment misunderstood by Peter's comments about building booths for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. We might surmise that Peter simply voiced the opinion of James and John as well. And then in Mark 14, we're told that when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives with his apostles after the Last Supper... These three men were taken by Jesus as he moved away from the wider group to pray and where these three men failed Jesus by falling asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. Once again, we are reminded that while, they, while Jesus designated these men as apostles, men who would carry his supremely delegated authority, Nevertheless, in the gospel accounts, we recognise they are still learners. 
And this comes out when we think more about the name that Jesus gave to James and John. Why did they get the name Sons of Thunder? Sounds like such a gentle name, doesn't it? Well, it's made pretty clear on two occasions as Jesus' earthly ministry was nearing the hour of the cross. Just turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Verse 38. Mark 9, verse 38. We read, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John, and by the we, he was implicating some of the other apostles there, probably his brother. So John and James in their zeal for Jesus had laid it upon themselves to stop those who were not directly lining up with them. But Jesus rebuked this action. Verse 39, Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now what was the reason Jesus was rebuking John? Was that John and his brother were hindering the work of those whose sincere actions showed they were genuine believers in Jesus as well. Now, just stop here for a second. This is actually an anomaly that we find in the Scriptures. Here is a man not part of the Twelve who had received the ability from God to cast out demons. We said that only the apostles were given that authority from Christ. So what do we make of this little reference here? Well, in Luke's Gospel, where this same account is recorded, we see that this event is immediately prior to Jesus commissioning the 70 disciples to go out and to preach and to perform validating miracles. So it's either a preview or perhaps this man became one of the 70. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the man's actions because it was an important lesson for the apostles. They needed to have their pride put in check what were they arguing about just before john said this who is the greatest can't be those people because they don't belong to us now as individuals or even corporately as a local church we need to be careful that we do not come under the same rebuke of jesus that john received here right we can't ever think that we're the only christians and if people aren't lined up behind us then they're not lined up at all That is elitist. And we must be very wary of falling into that trap. And yet at the same time, we must be discerning. We need to understand that in Jesus' rebuke, he was not being an advocate for working with anyone and everyone who uttered the name of Jesus, but whose actions and doctrine and lifestyles did not align with the Scriptures. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral ground. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. And to be with Christ is to submit to Christ as Lord and to hold to his word, the Holy Scriptures. In fact, in John's first letter, he states his purpose for writing, in 1 John 5, 13, 
He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the whole letter, the whole of 1 John really, is a series of proofs concerning doctrine and fruit by which a person can know that they belong to Christ. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John laid these things down. And the letter serves the dual purpose of encouraging Christians to know for certain that they belong to Christ. It's to be a great encouragement to them. Even if we struggle in these matters, if we know that these are concerns of us, we know that we belong to Christ. But it's a dual purpose. It also enables us to understand that just because someone utters the name of Jesus does not mean they belong to him. John goes even further in his second letter to explain how we should interact with those who do not align with these truths. In 2 John, he spends the first part, and there's only one chapter in 2 John, he spends the first half commending the Christians to love one another. But then he says, watch out for those deceivers. He says from verses 9 to 11, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now we, of course, must make every effort to evangelize those who do not truly know Christ. Yet John's statement is pretty clear, right? His sober words teach us that while we are to love brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not to support ministries that claim to be Christian, but whose beliefs and actions are contrary to the word of God. To be seen in conjunction with them is to even become a partaker with them in their wicked works. Now, how does that differ from when John tried to stop those casting out demons in Jesus' name? Well, John made the mistake of thinking only those directly associated with the disciples travelling with Jesus were truly disciples. And so we must take care to heed both of these lessons. Now, there was a second instant in the Gospels that also demonstrated Jesus' apt description of James and John as sons of thunder. In Luke chapter 9 verse 54 you don't need to turn there in Luke 9 54 we are told that when Jesus presence was shunned in Samaria James and John asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven and consume them surely that's what Jesus wanted Jesus response was a quick rebuke what's the lesson there the gospel is not to be preached with accompanying physical coercion the gospel message does contain within it a choice submit to the lord jesus and experience the love of god through the forgiveness of your sins and what a glorious good news that is because we already stand condemned before our holy creator and without divine salvation we will suffer god's wrath for all eternity there will come a time 
when disobedience to Christ will be fully punished. But that is the divine prerogative and it comes at the divinely appointed time. It's not for us to proclaim the gospel and then physically threaten people if they don't believe. In all this, we see that James and John displayed a great zeal for the Lord. But they're still learning, right? They're still making mistakes. They're still being trained by Jesus. They're still being grown to maturity, still being taught to direct their energies correctly. That the apostles were still learners in the gospel accounts is also made abundantly clear by their constant vying for authority, for prime position next to Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. verse 20 we read this then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him she asked him for something and he said to her what do you want she said to him say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom now if James and John were cousins of Jesus it would explain why Salome felt comfortable enough to speak to Jesus about her sons being given prominence. How did Jesus respond? Verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. It's bold words from the sons of thunder. Jesus continued, verse 23, He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So here's two things. Jesus predicts that these two apostles will suffer for the gospel. And then he explains that no believer can earn a greater standing before God than anyone else. No one can earn that. Everything we get is by the sovereign grace of God alone. We have nothing to boast in of ourselves. Now just note verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now was this a righteous indignation? Were they ashamed that their fellow apostles could ask such a thing of Jesus? Hardly. During Jesus' earthly ministry, vying for power was a regular occurrence between the twelve there's even a discussion after jesus hands out the emblems of institution on the night of his betrayal there's no righteous indignation here but again all that changed after the resurrection when james and john faithfully and sacrificially laid down their lives in service to their king primarily concerned about glorifying Jesus, not themselves. Take James. In the book of Acts, James is faithfully at work with the other apostles in the early stages of the ministry. In Acts 5, we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of who? 
the apostles. As a result of people responding to the gospel that the miracles validated, the apostles were all arrested and they were beaten by the Jewish authorities and forbidden to preach about Christ anymore. When the apostles were released, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And they just went on preaching. And the only time that James' name is mentioned specifically is in Acts chapter 12. The first two verses of Acts chapter 12, we read this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James is the only apostle aside from Judas, whose death we actually read about in scripture. And there's no fanfare to it. In fact, the focus is more on what Herod did rather than what happened to James. We don't even read about anyone mourning for James, although no doubt the church would have felt it keenly, and especially his younger brother John, words could not express the sorrow that he must have felt upon hearing the news. While believers grieve with hope, nevertheless we still grieve. But God meets us in and sustains us through that grief. Now it's accounts like the death of James which make you wonder how anyone can get sucked into the prosperity gospel. That false teaching that coming to Jesus will ensure health and wealth. The Bible teaches that in receiving Christ through faith, we are saved from the wrath of God. We have peace with him and are made his children. We have the assurance of eternity and the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more suffering or pain, but that is future. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ and having the indwelling Holy Spirit. Eternal life begins the moment a person repents and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And in this life, we are called to be faithful, are able to be faithful through the power of God's grace. In Revelation 2 and 3, John recounts the risen Lord Jesus' words to the seven churches. And in Revelation 2 verse 10, Jesus declared to the church in Smyrna, which was about to undergo persecution, he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Their martyrdom would not be a failure. It would instead be vindication of their faithfulness and it would be their path to glory. That's when John transcribed these words from Jesus. He thought of his own brother James who had done just that. Through James's martyrdom, his faithfulness was brought to fulfilment. And as he closed his eyes on the sinfulness of this world, he opened his eyes to the perfection of heaven and the glory of the risen Christ, greeting him with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, many Christians are killed for the faith and no one knows their name. But rest assured that as Psalm 116 declares, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What about John? 
Well, in the book of Acts, John is with Peter, when Peter heals the lame man in chapter 3. And then together they preach to the crowd, calling them to repent of their sins and trust in the resurrected Christ. Chapter 4, he's arrested with Peter for doing just that. Then he's arrested again and beaten with the other apostles in chapter 5. In chapter 8, when word comes to Jerusalem that the Samaritans have believed the gospel, it's Peter and John who go to investigate and they pray that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. We don't hear any more about John in the book of Acts, but from Paul's letter to the Galatians, we learn in chapter 2 that John is considered one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. John's absence from the second half of Acts may be explained by the fact that the early church fathers speak of him going to minister in Ephesus. And it was apparently from there that he wrote his gospel account and the three letters. By church tradition as well, it seems that John was the only apostle that did not meet a martyr's end. And yet he was by no means exempt from suffering for the gospel. You know, every, every single believer will have their own unique experience of suffering for Christ. And we're called to endure faithfully by the power of God's grace at work in our lives. Knowing that nothing happens that has not been permitted by God for his glory and for the good of our sanctification. John's suffering for Christ involved being exiled to the island of Patmos towards the end of the first century. But it's within this time of suffering and hardship that John is granted a heavenly vision and is told to write down all that he sees and hears and that record is found in the book of Revelation which is a tremendously encouraging book because it tells us exactly where history is headed. We're often told as Christians that we're on the wrong side of history. Have you read the book of Revelation? Christians, you know, we can agree to disagree on the specifics leading up to the end, but the climax of history, as we know it, is already written. God's holiness and glory will reign throughout the new heavens and new earth, and only those who have received God's mercy through faith in Christ Jesus will experience the beauty and the wonder of eternity in paradise. Those who reject Christ will face the wrath of God for all eternity. And the vision of God's wrath throughout the book is terrifying. The persecution that Christians face in this world is nothing compared to the holy fury of God that will be unleashed on the unrepentant. That tells you a lot about God's holiness and the sinfulness of our sin. Revelation tells us that Christian suffering is not in vain. Now, it's also interesting to note that at the end of the book of Revelation, we read these words. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, we read, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, this is not merely the apostles' warning. 
Because if you read the surrounding paragraphs, the grammar makes it more likely that it's Jesus making this declaration. What a privilege God placed on John to receive the final prophetic words of the canon of Scripture. And it's a message to us that says we should be truly satisfied in the sufficient words that God has revealed to us. As we draw to a close, let me just highlight for you one more thing we see in the scriptures about the Apostle John. In his gospel, John refers to himself in several places as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, did Jesus love John more than the other apostles? More than any of his disciples, including you and me? There's John over here and there's the rest of us. Well, chapter 13, John 13 is the first place where we read about John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. But in verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus did not and does not have different levels of love. He was not like the patriarchs of Israel who constantly showed greater affection to one child over the other. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob, but Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. We saw how well that worked out. But Jesus does not show favoritism to his children. He loves each one of us to the full. What does it mean then that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, it's simply his designation of himself. That's how he looked at himself. This is the testimony of a man whose worth was found solely in knowing he was loved by Jesus. John's most famous words remind us that this too is the way all believers can refer to themselves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Humanity stands condemned under the wrath of our holy creator God and so how extraordinary is his love that God would send his only son to die to pay the price for the sins of his enemies. When we receive Christ through faith, we know that we have responded to the incredible love of God that has come to us first. People speak of John as the apostle of love. And truly, when you read through his writings, there is a lot about love. But it is love that is grounded in truth. God is love. God is love. And so any talk of love that separates itself from the character and revelation of God is useless, it's weak, it's wrong, it's abhorrent to God. And God's love is active and holy. And what effect should God's love have upon his people, upon those who believe this wonderful good news? 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
It's quite amazing to read these words from the sons of thunder, or from one of the sons of thunder. What an incredible testimony that is to the transforming power of God's gracious love in the lives of his people. So here are James and John. These men were brash fishermen. They had nothing going for them that would have warranted being called to Jesus' side. That's the wonder of grace. Through being in Jesus' presence, they realised their deep sinfulness. They saw how their actions were oftentimes selfish and self-promoting. They saw how their words stood in contrast to the word of God. But by God's grace, they learned humility. They gained servant hearts. They were strengthened to endure faithfully through suffering. And they knew the love of Jesus. These men exercised supreme authority after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They were his representatives with the the other twelve through whom the church was established. But the testimony of God's grace is something we each can know. We each can know, refer to ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The moment we repent of sin and trust in Christ as Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks and praise for the lives of James and John. In their lives we see your wonderful grace at work. We see the way that you taught them and in that we come to see how Merciful and gracious, you will be with each one of us as we turn our eyes to you. Help us to be faithful to your word and help us to know that as we seek to strive to be more like Christ, we know that we do so by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the good things that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.